Welcome to Unspoken Unsung, the podcast that introduces people we may pass on the street every day, never knowing how inspiring their life experiences and accomplishments are, or how much we could learn from them if we only knew their untold stories. think of San Diego County, the first things that usually come to mind are beaches, golf courses, fine hotels and restaurants. Perhaps the last thing that comes to mind is farming. But San Diego County has the 19th largest farm economy of all the counties in the United States. It's the number one producer of avocados and nursery crops in the United States number two in the nation in acres of guavas, pomegranates, limes, and macadamias. San Diego County ranks among the top 10 counties in the nation in the production of lemons, strawberries, and chicken eggs. And get this, number two in farms with women as principal operator. That all surely comes as a surprise to even the most die-hard San Diego area locals, but it's been fundamental in the passion and life's work of Eric Larson. It's a major understatement to say he's an expert on California's horticulture, agriculture, and on the state's unique water supply as well. Eric's connections to California history also run deep. His life story and perspectives are fascinating time to enjoy a conversation with Eric Larson. Eric Larson, welcome to Unspoken Unsung. Well, thank you for inviting me. I I, I hope I proved to be a worthwhile guest. (laughs) Oh, well, for me, you're the perfect example of how little we often know and get to appreciate about people we see regularly. I mean, really, you're an ideal guest for the podcast. Um, I've seen you many times through the years, but it took a random conversation at a birthday party for one of your nieces before I really began to discover just how fascinating your life story is. Well, you know, it's, it's been my life story. I'm not sure I'd use the word fascinating, but uh, <laughs> hopefully something fascinating comes out in the conversation. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, in that conversation, I learned that your family connection to California and, and Hollywood history uh, runs pretty deep. Uh, why don't you tell us about your family ties to Hollywood? Yeah, it, it's it, it's interesting, and it's one of those things that uh, it's part of the family history, so to us it's not a huge deal. But um, my great-uncle, Hal Roach, born in Elmira, New York, didn't find any prospects there, decided, gee, I'm going to move to California, moved to California. He was a fisherman, did all these different jobs, and Hollywood was, start, Hollywood was starting to boom in the the early 1920s, and he thought, gee, maybe I'll get into the movie business. And uh, he met this guy named Harold Lloyd, who became extremely famous. People of older generations would recognize the name, but a very, very famous comedian. They created a partnership and started making short films just on virtually no money in their pocket. And over the years, he met some other people and ended up being Hal Roach Studios. And my grandfather, Jack Roach, his brother, uh, worked at the studio as, as a director, um, location scout, 
casting agent. And so, um, yeah, real connection to Hollywood. And where did you spend your younger years? Well, uh, my father was in the Navy uh, during World War II. Then afterwards, he worked for the Civil Aviation Administration, which became the um, Federal Aviation Administration. So we were in Oakland. We were in Washington State, settled in Encinitas. I, I, you know, Encinitas is my hometown, I consider it. So I, I arrived at a very, very uh, young age. But it was kind of nice when we lived in Encinitas. We got to make those occasional trips up to Uncle Hal's house in Hollywood <laughs> and go to the studio and actually watch movies being filmed. And um, I, I remember very clearly, distinctly uh, going up on the studio a lot and... Um, uh, meeting with the folks there and the start. I was a little, I was a little kid, um, but uh, it was it was kind of fun. And you starstruck. You'd see these folks, just normal folks walking yeah, yeah. around, and um, yeah, it was pretty cool. So, did your Hollywood connections influence your thinking or your interests in your formative years? You know, not really. So, my my mother did appear in our gang comedies. Because mm-hmm. that our game comedies um, was really and uh, Laurel and Hardy were the were the two biggies for Hal Roach Studios. They really that's where you, he Hal Roach really hung his hat. And my my grandfather worked on all those films, and so my mother and her sister never were frontline performers, but were always what we call now background actors right. today. So if they need a schoolroom full of kids or a bunch of kids for a ball game or something like that. My mother and her sister lived right there next to the lot. So they just give them a call and they'd come over and appear in the R gang comedies when extra kids were in. But, you know, no, no influence on uh, me or my family. Um, we just knew there was the connection, but it wasn't part of our life. So who, who was your probably most influential role model in your younger years? Well, that, that's pretty interesting. I, I probably have two. Uh, one, of course, would be my, my father because he was a very, very steady influence for me. He was very rock solid, really made very um, considerate decisions on things. And so whenever I needed advice on things like that, um, the other person really had an influence on me and probably really had the biggest influence on the direction my life took career-wise was my high school ag teacher, a gentleman named Tom Cunningham. So if we go back to the 1960s, every high school in North County had an agriculture department, every single one. And several students took the ag classes, which I was able to do. And Mr. Cunningham was a real horticulture advocate. He, he really liked the nursery business and kind of convinced me that that was a potential life goal, go into the nursery business, because it's a big business in San Diego County. Wow. So I'd venture a guess that uh, most people who are aware of the coastal communities of North San Diego County Think of this as a tourist destination or a golf and beach resort. Um, you've got a very different perspective, obviously. Well, so I, I did go into the nursery business, specifically growing cut flowers uh, in Encinitas, uh, mostly in Carlsbad, off Poinsettia Lane. Did that for quite some time. Um, then I went into nonprofit work, and we can talk about that, advocating for farm. That became my real goal in life, my real work was doing advocacy work for farmers in San Diego County. But you're right. Most people in San Diego County have this beach, freeway, tourism perspective. And they don't understand, they don't know the history of agriculture in San Diego County or how big an industry it continues to be in San Diego County today. 
from um, from a land use perspective, it consumes more land than any other business in San Diego County and creates about $2 billion in economic value locally per year and um, employs thousands of people. So it's still really a big industry here. But if we roll back to the, you know, the, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, it was almost impossible to drive around coastal North County without passing a farm. Farms were everywhere. Yes. And I, I'm going to, most people that live in San Diego County today are probably living on previous farmland. Because if you look at old aerials or old maps of San Diego County, pretty much everything was farmland at one point mm-hmm. in time. You've in the past described our, uh, our ecology or our, our ecosystem as arid. It is, it is very arid and we're, we have a very lush landscape here and the water always comes on when we turn the faucet. So, most folks here are later arrivals than, you know, say maybe somebody like yourself or my family that have been here for, you know, for generations. And so people don't understand that completely. Hopefully they'll figure it out eventually and un- understand that. But our water comes here from, from great, great distances. We import the water that we use um, every day. And that has a de- direct connection to agriculture in San Diego County as well, because without water, you can't farm. Well, it actually seems pretty miraculous that this turned into an agricultural area. Well, you know, if you look at it historically, weather-wise, this is a great place to farm, and soil-wise, it's a very good place to farm. The missing ingredient was always water. So if we go back, let's see, let's roll back to the missionaries when they came, right. when they started San Diego Mission, San Luis Rey Mission, they Prior to that, you'd had Indians who were hunters and gatherers. You had Spanish explorers that were moving through the territory. But then these missions were established, and they tried to establish communities. And suddenly, you got all these people you have to feed. So they started planting grapes, and they started planting things like squashes and olives, and they brought in goats and sheep. So that's how farming got started in the county. Mm. And those missions were both on rivers, one on the San Luis Rey River and one on the San Diego River. So they had access to water. So the farms could only be within a relatively short distance of those rivers. And so that's the history of agriculture in San Diego County. We have these rivers. And believe it or not, people say, gee, we should capture more rainwater in San Diego County. What people don't know is every river in San Diego County had a dam built on it to capture rain runoff by the 1920s, every single river. So those, that was done a long, long time ago. It wasn't enough water but at the time, that's what was done. So how was it distributed? And so there were gravity. For instance, um, I was raised in Encinitas, Lake Hodges. So the water was captured in Lake Hodges and fed by gravity down into Encinitas. So um, this, this can move into another story. And that story is my great-grandfather, who was an avocado grower in Encinitas, would this be Frank Gayhart? This would be Frank Gayhart. Yes, yes, he would. So Frank Gayhart, my great-grandfather, um, owned a tobacco shop in Los Angeles. And, you know, he, he, he just wasn't, he was ready to leave Los, he was done with Los Angeles in the 1920s. And uh, he saw an ad in the LA Times. And the ad said, move to, move to Lacadia, California, grow alligator pears, and make your fortune. Alligator pears were avocados. So if you think of an avocado, it's got that rough green Sure, strip. yeah. The original name was alligator pear. 
And so he answered that ad and bought an avocado farm in Encinitas. The reason that avocado farm existed in 1923, 24, 25, they built Lake Hodges Dam, and now there was a water supply to feed the Encinitas Lacadia area, and developers started chopping that un, um, unsettled area up into big plots of land and planted avocado trees and sold these avocado farms to folks because now there was a source of water. I went back and said that water's has to do with the history of agriculture in San Diego County. So previous to that, people just, what they call dry land farm, lima beans, wheat, barley, things that you just, I hope it rains, to germinate the seeds. And if it doesn't, we'll try again next year. But once that water started to flow from all these dams, then these farms started to pop up all uh -huh. over the county. So um, Frank must have been willing to take some risks. I mean, chasing... Uh Chasing the dream down here. What, what did he know about growing avocados? <laughs> you know, I, th I think about that story of him being a tobacconist and having a cigar store and then deciding to become a farmer in Encinitas. And it hasn't changed. Uh, in my work today, um, even I'm retired from my nonprofit work advocating for farmers. I still do some consulting on the side. And the majority of my work is helping people who have been doing something else and then have this desire to become a farmer. And they'll buy a farm. And now they're a farmer, and they have no idea what to do. <laughs> and, and so the story hasn't changed from 1925 to 2021. The same thing is still happening. People just have this, I don't know if it's a romantic notion or some kind of a notion to become a farmer, and they do that. And, and he was like that. He didn't do well. I will tell you, my great-grandfather did not do well as a farmer. It just didn't work out. Not completely his fault, because as it turns out, Fallbrook and Valley Center were much better places to grow avocados than Encinitas, but those places didn't have water yet, and so consequently, the fruit wasn't being grown there. So the original avocado groves were planted in Encinitas and Carlsbad in San Diego County, and a few in Mission Valley and places like that, but it just didn't prove to be the best place to grow them. So what did he do? Well, he, you know, it then became kind of a, a hand-to-mouth farm. Uh, he had some chickens. He could sell some eggs, sell some avocados, uh, leased his land out occasionally to other farmers uh, to grow um, other things and just kind of, I'm not going to say it was a subsistence life, but my great-grandmother would can the fruits and vegetables they grew on the farm. And she worked as a bookkeeper in downtown Encinitas. Uh -huh. so I think that income probably is what really made a difference for them. Um, my mother moved in with my great-grandparents. And so this will loop back to my story of my, my family in Hollywood. So my, my grandfather, Jack Roach, was doing well in the business of Hollywood, working for his brother. And my mother had asthma, needed to leave Los Angeles, and she moved to Encinitas, where the air was cleaner at the advice of doctors. And so she moved in with her grandparents, uh, Frank and, and Lola Gayhart, and so she lived there. My grandfather was able to pay them to help take care of his daughter, you know, he and my, my grandmother's daughter, my mother, and so that helped them as well. And my mother, so my mother arrived in Encinitas, and I gosh, around 1930. Born in 1925, arrived in Encinitas around 1930. So your great-grandmother Lola... Yes. Yes. 
So they they called the place the ranch. The ranch. Yes. What are, what are your earliest recollections of the ranch? Chickens everywhere. I do remember that as a little kid. We'd we'd come down there and you'd pull in the driveway and you have to drive slow so the chickens would get out of the way. You know, it's kind of funny. It, it's like you you see these visions of these farms in the movies and people kind yes. of still think of farms that way, which they're not anymore. But that's how it was. So there was fruit trees all over the place. There was chickens. There were ducks. Quite often there was a cow or a pig in the backyard. So uh, for us as kids, it was it was really a fun place because we could just take off and wander uh, around this farm, climb the avocado trees. Uh, and Encinitas was very rural. Um, so all these stories kind of connect together. So again, I told my I told you my father worked for the civil. Aviation Administration, then went to work for the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, as an air traffic controller. Mm -hmm. Eventually, his career landed him in San Diego. And so my parents came to San Diego. Um, My parents had both lived in San Diego area as children, and so they were familiar with the area. On my dad's side, there was agriculture as well. His my grandfather on my father's side was a wine grape grower in El Cajon. Mm. And so, so there was all that connection there. And when my parents had a chance to come back to San Diego, they jumped at it. They thought, oh, yeah, we, we know San Diego. We know that region. We'd really like it. So my dad took the job at Miramar Naval Air Station as an air traffic controller, moved in with my great-grandparents, where my mother had lived as a child, oh. temporarily, while they searched for a home while we lived there as a small family small family there were six of us my my parents and my uh, three siblings and myself living with my great-grandparents they decided they were too old to run the ranch anymore and they were ready to move back to la they needed to be closer to shopping closer to medical services and live closer to their their two daughters so they sold the ranch to my parents (laughs) we never left (laughs) <laughs> so we moved in there temporarily just as a convenience while my, my parents were home shopping, but we ended up, that ended up becoming our family home. So uh, my family still owns that home that my great-grandparents built in the 1920s. Wow. And my son and his two daughters live there now. So those girls are the sixth generation to live in that house. Amazing. Yeah, so it, it's really something. So stereotypically... One would think that children on a ranch or on a farm are going to have to get up at the crack of dawn and work all day. It sounds like that was not your experience. Not at all. Not, <laughs> not, even, not even close. I mean, what are you going to do with an avocado tree? It doesn't take, <laughs> you know, that you're not going to milk it. You don't have to go out and feed it. You just kind of go out and look at it. And uh, so that wasn't the case at all. It was, for us, it was more of a playground than anything else. So uh, my parents bought the ranch. There were still a few avocados there. The soil wasn't right for avocados, and the grove got smaller and smaller over the years. Um, but my parents liked the idea of having the chickens and the ducks and the rabbits and raising a pig or a cow or something on occasion, leasing land out to strawberry and tomato growers. So there's almost always strawberries and tomatoes growing on the property, mm-hmm. being grown by other farmers by other folks who were renting the land. So we, we had this rural farm-like feeling all the time on that property, even though we weren't really engaged in the farming operation ourselves as kids growing up until I actually got older, got into 4-H and Future Farmers of America. And then 
I started taking on projects that did require me to get up early and feed the animals and muck the stalls before going to school, coming back in the evening, washing the animals, cleaning the stalls again, feeding the animals again. So I, I did eventually get that. You know, I bet, I bet if you did a survey of people in North San Diego County, coastal county, mm-hmm. between the ages of, say, 30 on down, and if you were to ask them what 4-H is, they would not have a clue. Yeah, 4-H is head, heart, hand, and health. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe I remembered that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds yeah, like... Yeah, so that yeah, so, yeah, and everybody belonged to the 4-H club. So when I... Let's, okay, so... I'm, I'm going to take a stab at this, but I, I would guess when we moved to Encinitas, population was three or 4,000. Mm-hmm. All the roads were, most of the roads were dirt. I, I don't want to sound like the old guy, but I guess I'll admit it. You're in good company. Yeah, I'm the old guy. We're the same age. Yeah, same age. So, you know, roads were mostly dirt, no stoplights. Um, La Paloma Theater was the only movie theater any place, any place around. Not very many people, but all the kids belonged to 4-H. I mean, that was... We didn't have, I don't, I, we had Little League. So it was kind of like Little League and 4-H. That was it. Now, kids are over-organized now. I mean, yeah. it doesn't matter what a child wants to do now. But at those days, for us, the YMCA wasn't there yet in Encinitas. But it was, it was, um, it was 4-H and Little League. That was pretty much it. And so that was how your, your interest, perhaps your passion about horticulture came about? It really did. So I, I did the 4-H thing and it kind of stuck with me because I really enjoyed it. Um, I really like going to the Del Mar Fair and showing the animals for a couple yeah. of weeks a year. I always thought, I to me, that was my highlight of the year. So I started doing that maybe at age 10 um, through the 4-H, raising sheep and rabbits and chickens. And then I moved into the Future Farmers of America, which, uh, it's, which is now you're getting high school credit for it. Yeah. And raised larger animals pigs and steers and and showed them at the fair and did that and so i i had this idea that gee i want to be a cattle rancher that was really my the thought in my head i thought gee, i'd I'd love to be in a place like minden and be a cattle rancher Mm -hmm. totally unrealistic because your family doesn't already own 1200 acres someplace (laughs) that's not going to happen but you know as a 14 15 year old kid i thought that'd be a cool thing to do and so that connects me with my high school ag teacher Mr. Cunningham. Uh-huh. So I'm taking the ag classes at San Diego High School because I, I was really attracted to agriculture. And he says, you know what? Look around you. It's not about beef cattle. It's not about sheep. It's not about pigs. It's about horticulture. It's about ornamental horticulture and growing house plants and landscape plants and cut flowers. Mm-hmm. Why don't mm-hmm. you pursue that? And I tell you what, when I, he got me a job, part-time job working at a greenhouse in Encinitas, loved the hard, hard work. I loved it. Started learning Spanish because everybody, if I was going to communicate with everybody, I had to talk Spanish because I was the only sure. non-Spanish speaker in, in the greenhouse operation and that just evolved and it, and it just stuck. Do 4-H and FFA still exist in North County? They, they still do. Um, 4-H is out there. Um, it's become more urbanized, which is not unexpected and the projects aren't all about raising livestock which they were for me right. as a child and they're still our future farmers now they're not necessarily the schools on the coast but if you go to schools like Escondido, San Pasqual, Fallbrook, Valley Center 
There are still active Future Farmers of America chapters there, and there's still ag instructors on campus teaching kids about agricultural um, skills. In fact, I still serve on a committee for the San Diego County Farm Bureau. We have a meeting next week when we're going to give out scholarships to agriculture students in San Diego County who are pursuing a career in agriculture. And we've got about 28 applicants. Wow. So that's kids in high school in San Diego County have still decided they want to pursue agricultural as a career. Mm-hmm. So four years out of high school, you're already, uh, you have a title of head grower at a company that uh, specialized in growing roses. Thompson Rose Company off Poinsettia Lane in Encinitas. So I got connected with them um, through a friend, uh, went to work, David Thompson, uh, owned and operated Thompson Rose Company. So if you get off on Poinsettia Lane, the freeway wasn't there. Again, here's the old guy story. The freeway wasn't there. We had to access it from the coast highway. So it was a dirt road. Poinsettia Lane was a dirt road from the coast highway Mm -hmm. across the railroad tracks and up the hill. Just envision the same pathway that Poinsettia Lane travels today. Go about half a mile east of where the freeway was built. And on the right-hand side was Thompson Rose Company, a very large uh, operation growing cut roses Mm -hmm. and um, also cut chrysanthemums. I went to work for that company. So and then with eight years of experience under your belt, you started your own nursery. But, um, you know, you Obviously, what I've seen is that right around then, your skills and leadership began to emerge. I don't know if they were merged or hijacked or what happened, but <laughs> um, my, my wife, is a Jennifer, is a long, lifelong resident of the city of Carlsbad, and I got involved in civics in the city of Carlsbad, which was kind of a one-off because that really hadn't been what I'd been involved in. You know, I'd been in 4-H, FFA, Boy Scouts. You know, those are kind of like... You learn a little bit about civics and those things. Went to high school, went to college. But local government was never in my wheelhouse. But when I got to Carlsbad, the circle of friends that my wife was involved in changed that for me. And I really bought into it. And if if you care to hear the story about how it got started, um, through my wife's circle of friends, I was playing recreational softball. I was probably 22, 23, 24 Mm -hmm. years old. And we played softball. But we played in the league in Oceanside because Carlsbad didn't have one. Mm. So we had to go to Oceanside to play softball. A bunch of Carlsbad guys. Yeah. Um, a lot of them, Carlsbad High School, class of 67, was the majority of the folks. It's uh, my group. Your group, your, your, your class from high school. That was the majority of the team. And they, they invited, you know, I, I was accepted into the group and we played softball and we had to play recreational softball in Oceanside because as working people, you had to play softball at night. There was a softball field at Pine Street School, but there were no lights. On the team I was playing with was a guy named Tom Chase. His dad was on the Carlsbad City Council. Mm, mm -hmm. So after the game one night in Oceanside, we all went to the Chase house to have beers and just sit around and reminisce and, you know, do what 20-somethings do. Lou Chase was there. I think I groused a little louder than everybody else about, (laughs) this is ridiculous, why aren't there lights on a field in Carlsbad where we can play softball at night? And Lou says, well, you know, some, somebody just needs to take care of that and make it happen. You know, you got to make things. He's, I got Chase Field built, which is still there today. Yes. So, so he had this can-do attitude. He says, somebody's got to do it. 
And I died at the end of the evening. Okay, so the evening's over. Totally forget about it. Three, four, five days later, a week later, I get a letter from the mayor of Carlsbad, David Dunn. And the letter says, Dear Mr. Larson, you've been appointed to the Parks and Recreation Commission. Oh, my goodness. I did not apply. I did not ask for it. But I got a letter from the mayor telling me I've been appointed to the Parks and Recreation Commission because Lou Chase was calling my bluff, is what it really came down to, uh-huh. about getting lights installed on the field at Pine Street School. I got on the Parks and Recreation Commission. I showed up for the first meeting. I had no idea what was going on. I really didn't understand city government. Yeah. I didn't know that. But here I was, and I was, appoint- I was a parks commissioner for the city of Carlsbad, which after several years led me to then be appointed to the planning commission by Mayor Frizee. And then I was on the planning commission for a number of years. And man, I was kind of grasping this whole civic service thing in the city of Carlsbad. And the cities, the city at that time was projected to have a population at build out of around 250,000 people. Mm. This was going to be really an urbanized area with really dense, dense housing is what Carlsbad was destined to be. Mayor Bud Lewis, who had then become mayor, no, he he was on the city council, but he and the other members of the council came up with this idea for this growth management plan. And I got involved in that, and I served as the chairman of a committee to rewrite the general plan for the city of Carlsbad. This evolved into the city's uh, growth management plan that it is, and rezoned the whole city and reduced that ultimate population down to about 135,000. So Carlsbad wouldn't be this overdeveloped place. That led me to run for city council and ran and lost, ran a second time and won, and a third time and won again. Were you mentored along the way? Bud Lewis, absolutely. Mentored along by Bob Frizee. Well, several people. I, I would say Mary Castler, Ron Packard, Bob Frizee, and Bud Lewis were all very, very influential in my deciding to get involved and run for city council and to getting very involved in the operations of the city of Carlsbad. Now, were you concurrently still running your own business during any part of this? You know, at that time, I had already moved into nonprofit work. So I'd gotten out of the actual day-to-day production of agricultural products and selling things. And, I, and that's when I ventured into nonprofit work, becoming an advocate. Um, I first worked for a marketing cooperative, a nonprofit marketing cooperative for growers, uh, selling cut flowers, house plants, things like that. And then that eventually evolved into becoming the executive director of the San Diego County Farm Bureau, which was my final career position that I held for 23 years. That sounds like uh, there was an organization called the California Floriculture Growers Cooperative. Was that Yeah, so I was, I, yeah, I was the general manager of that. And so that was an organization that started in Encinitas and then moved to Carlsbad and created a location called the, the International Floral Trade Center, which is still a building. It had been a computer factory in Carlsbad, got converted over to a large wholesale flower market. And I was the general manager of the largest tenant wholesale flower seller in that. And we ran it as a nonprofit farmers uh, cooperative. Mm -hmm. So I was 
running that operation when I made that decision to run for city council. We started very early in the morning. My workday started at 4.30 a.m. I was kind of done by about 12.30 or 1 every day. And so it made it compatible with running and serving on the city council at that time. With all your spare time. Yeah, with all my, and and plus having two small children. So yeah, so uh, managed to put it all together. Yep. So in 75, actually, you were, you were only 26 when you became parks commissioner. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that I was kind of guessing what those age times were, but yeah, in my mid twenties then, which, which got me going on that track. And, um, I, I think since that time, so I was on the parks commission, planning commission for quite some time, then on the city council. But even after that, I've been, I've pretty consistently been on some kind of committee or function for the city consistently, uh, pretty much all that time since the 1970s. Well, along the way, um, I mean, clearly the management of uh, naturally arid ecosystems, water resources is one of your life's passions. Absolutely. So you served with the, Calif- with the Carlsbad Municipal Water District, the San Diego County Water Authority, and Sina Wastewater Authority in 10 years as the administrator of the San Diego Regional Irrigated Land Group. So given that San Diego's climate is under normal circumstances arid, what's your perspective on San Diego County's long-term outlook with regard to water supply? So San Diego is an extremely unique position. So the, the, the quick short story of water in San Diego County is very, very arid. And as I mentioned before, people were living off the water that ran through the few rivers that we had in San Diego County. Then from the late 1800s through the 1920s, dams were built on all the rivers. Things were formed like Lake Calavera here in Carlsbad, Lake Hodges, San Vicente. All these different reservoirs were built um, to create, to capture local water and move that water mostly to the coastal regions where people were living and people were farming. The, the really big change that came with, with water in, in San Diego County was post-World War II. World War II, um, pre-World War II, San Diego as a region, still sleepy little San Diego County. L.A. was the big deal. Not that much going on in San Diego County. During World War II, it became very obvious that San Diego was going to be an extremely important military location. Camp Pendleton, Miramar, and the San Diego Harbor. But there was not enough water. Clearly not enough water to support the military operations and the growing, the, the very growing population and the growing military um, industry, or I should say the, um, the military contractors in San Diego, right. things like Roar that were yeah. building uh, planes and, and rockets in San Diego County. So setting all the politics aside, in 1947, San Diego County got hooked up to the Colorado River. And so water started flowing to San Diego County from the Colorado River in 1947. So now we weren't dependent entirely on this set of dams that we had built up to the 1920s. We now had an imported water supply coming from the Colorado. So the dams had been built all along the Colorado River, managing that system. So water flowed from there down into San Diego County beginning 1947. Game changer for agriculture and for development. So... If you look at the history and you want, to, you want to see curves in things, you see the curve of the amount of agriculture in San Diego County really went straight up 
beginning then, because now water's available for farming, but also for the population rise. Now you could build houses all over the place because now there was a sufficient water supply. So post-World War II, that population boom took place here as right. well. That worked great through the 40s, 50s, 60s. Getting to the 1970s, we were now running out of water again. We did not have sufficient supply. That's when statewide, this, a, a measure was passed to build what's called the State Water Project. Shortcut to that story is, then water started flowing to San Diego County from the Sacramento Delta. So we now had three sources of water. We had the local water, we had the Colorado River water, and we had the water coming out of the Sacramento Delta. So our water supply was getting more robust and getting more reliable. Again, counting through the decades, this works great for the 70s, the 80s, but we had a significant drought in 90, 91, 92 that really put the fear in the most of San Diego County. The water shortages on the Colorado River, water shortages in Sacramento, everybody goes, whoa, is, is this going to cover us? And San Diego then, the County Water Authority, then um, launched into a greater manner of self-sufficiency. So we cut a deal, San Diego cut a deal, to buy water from the farmers in the Imperial Valley. A very small portion of the water used by the farmers in Imperial Valley was bought by San Diego on a permanent agreement, and that water flows to us now. So that gave us another sort, still Colorado River water, but it was water the farmers had a right to. So it added to our portfolio. And then doing additional things like building the Carlsbad desalination plant and getting very active in recycling. We have a lot of, we do use a lot of recycled water for irrigation here in San Diego County. And the next big step is going to be what's called pure water. And that's where we take our sewer water or our effluent water. I shouldn't use the word sewer, but our wastewater in San Diego County, clean it up to a point where it's going to be put back into the drinking water system. Really? To close the loop. That's, that's already happening in San Diego County, and it's going to be happening more and more. So I, I apologize. That's a long answer to your question. What's our situation in arid San Diego County? Yes, we're an arid region. We need to be very, very careful with our landscape. We need to be very, very careful with our water because it, you know, it's a finite resource. But at the same time, San Diego's in a pretty good position of reliability of water supply based on the fact that we're not depending on not one, two, or even three sources. We're like at five sources of water now. So it puts San Diego in a bit of an enviable position. Um, the hard part for the farmers, though, all those things we have, when the water was behind dams and flowed by gravity to the farmers, it was pretty cheap water. Now this water's coming from places like Sacramento, Colorado River, or the desal plant. That's all expensive water. So that's been a real challenge for farmers in San Diego County. As, as residents and commercial users of water, you know, we want the reliability. We don't care that the price. Okay, we care about the price, but gosh, water's still less than our cell phone bill each month. So we don't get that excited about the water bill. But for farmers, it's a huge challenge. And if we list all the challenges to farmers in San Diego County, the price of water, not the availability of water, but the price of water is probably at the very top of that list. Which has got to change the the landscape, so to speak, of the farming in the area, too. I mean, aren't there, 
It's like, as I understand, a lot of different crops, avocados apparently use a lot of water, and a lot of the avocado growers are cutting down their, their trees and shifting over to other... Yeah, we've, you know, this is anecdotal, but I, from my experience, I, I guess we've lost 12,000 acres of avocados in San Diego County in the last decade and a half. Most of that because of the cost of water. It's not... Avocados are basically on hillsides in the backcountry. So they're not in the path of development. Not like the tomatoes and strawberry growers who are on, and flower growers who are on the coast were definitely in the path of development. So in places like Carlsbad, Oceanside, Encinitas, that agriculture went away because the real estate became too valuable. But where the avocados are being grown, and citrus as well, in San Diego County, not really in the path of development. So that's not the threat. That cost of water really is the threat and makes it very, very difficult to so, know, survive economically. And, and the source is, the Colorado doesn't even make it to the ocean anymore, does it? No, the Colorado flows through um, southern Arizona and southern California and, and, and gets to Mexico. It doesn't quite, yeah, it doesn't make it to the Delta, except for in very, 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 through the Delta to the, to the Gulf of California in very, very wet years. Because the Colorado River is completely engineered. It's not a wild river by, by any stretch. Um, it's a whole series of dams going up and down that are providing water for southern Nevada, Arizona, southern California, and Mexico. So all of those regions are dependent on the Colorado River, but build a tremendous amount of storage in all those reservoirs to flatten out the supply you know, take the peaks and valleys out of the, out of the supply. And so you're right. It's, it's not a wild river. It doesn't get to the ocean. Completely engineered and dams all the way along the way. So in, in Sacramento, is, that, uh, is their source the same as the, uh, the San Joaquin Valley? Yes, it is. So you have a series of dams above the Sacramento region. You have Shasta Dam, um, uh, I, I don't know why I'm drawing a blank on any of them, but there's a num number of dams up there that are above the Sacramento Valley, releasing water into the Sacramento Valley. That water is then picked up and then pumped to the farms in the San Joaquin Valley and all the way down to us in, in Southern California. But yes, it's a series of dams releasing water into the Sacramento Delta and provides the water that's in, used on all those farms in the San Joaquin Valley. And it's not just those ones, but there's also a lot of dams on the western slope of the Sierra Nevadas that feeds farms in the San Joaquin Valley as well. Is, is, is part of the source underground water? Part of the source is. Uh, we're mostly dependent on above ground water. There's 1,200, 1,300 dams in California mm -hmm. capturing runoff. So we really depend on that snow and snow melt and the rainwater um, runoff. But yes, there is groundwater in California as well. But groundwater is a function of how much precipitation do you get, how much water lands and trickles down. California has some wet spots, but they tend to be on the coast, places like Santa Cruz or Eureka. Inland, it's much drier where the great large groundwater basins are. We have some groundwater basins in San Diego County, but if you don't have a lot of rainfall or precipitation feeding those groundwater basins, um, that that can be something that can be overdrafted pretty easily. So that tends to to 
I guess probably the best question would be what's your what's your sense of the long term outlook given that we're in such a drought situation and climate change and all that other sort of stuff. Yeah, n- number one, we need to become extremely efficient on the water we use. So um, this is not an indictment on farmers, but water has been plentiful and cheap. And I'm in San Diego County, farmers have always been very, very conscious of the water use because of all the reasons I mentioned. Water here has always been expensive. So farmers have been very conscious of that. You get into other regions of the state, the Imperial Valley, the San Joaquin Valley specifically, water's been plentiful and it's been relatively inexpensive. So there really wasn't a need to invest in high-tech irrigation technology. That has changed. And so that investment in high-technology irrigation efficiency is taking place throughout the state. So those farmers... And agriculture uses the bulk of water in the state. Farmers are becoming much more efficient at what they do from an irrigation standpoint. For them, it's not as much a price issue like it is in San Diego County. It's really more of a sustaining issue. Exactly. How can we use enough water to make sure that? So that's a big part of it. And in, in the urban part of the country, state, we still need to save water as well. But the other thing we need to do in California is we have very wet years. And we have very dry years. And climate change is adding to that, and it's making those extremes greater, the wet versus the dry. We have to have sufficient storage in the wet years. So water usage in California is not going up. We're just having a greater impact, perhaps from climate change, on the number of dry years we have and the number of wet years we have, and creating greater extremes between the two. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we need to do is realize, okay, if we're going to have these extremes, we need to do a better job of saving water. When I say saving it, not by turning the water off when you brush your teeth, I mean saving it behind in a reservoir mm-hmm. for use at another time, maybe two or three years down the road. And we do have some places where we can build some more water storage. We're not going to, there's no more rivers to dam up. We dammed them all up already. So there's no place to do that. But there are places where we can store water in, in California that has the lowest environmental impact and still has the capacity to sustain the economy of California. Underground water, is, is the, isn't the underground water for the San Joaquin Valley essentially just a massive... Uh, what what's it called an aquifer? Yeah, it's a giant aquifer, and uh, during the last drought, a lot of that got overdrafted to the point where s- land started to subside. So we we have we have to be careful about that. So um, so a groundwater management act was the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act was passed in California. Previous to that, groundwater was not regulated in California. Everybody wanted to put a. a, a Everyone who wants to put a straw in the aquifer could put a straw in the aquifer and suck water out. That's changing in California. So that's becoming regulated. So that's going to change to manage the, the groundwater. So that, that will change throughout California. But we do have to be careful. It's a balance. We've got to, we don't want to deplete the groundwater because there can be other things. Uh, it can impact the environment. There can be subsidence. And once the land collapses, you can't just pump water in there and fill it back up. It's once the sponge gets squashed, yeah. you can't. It won't expand again. So we have to be careful of that. So we have to manage all those. So they're water trying resources. to replace that water underground. You know, injecting water into the ground is always part of the conversation, and we do it in a lot of places. Uh, but it's extremely difficult to do. It's hard to put water down into the ground, 
and it's hard to pull it back out of the ground. It takes a lot of energy on both ends versus surface storage, which is usually just gravity filled and gravity emptied. So it's a combination of both. You still need the groundwater and we will need to do some injecting into the ground and groundwater basins are very inexpensive. It's not like building a reservoir, which costs billions and billions of dollars. If you've got a groundwater reservoir, you just put water into it and it's already a reservoir, but it's underground. So we need to do both. We need to look at everything. We don't have a silver bullet on the water situation in California, but we have to have, not unlike San Diego has these multiple sources of water, the whole state of California has to have multiple sources of water and storage as mm -hmm. well. Wow. So we touched on this, but how would you say agriculture in North San Diego County, well, San Diego County in general, how has it changed over the last 20 years? Well, the, the, the biggest change is that we've gone to, um, I guess what I'll identify as high-valued crops. Again, this is driven by several things. One, land has become very expensive, and water is very expensive. So it becomes harder and harder to grow what I would call a low-valued crop. And that would be the standard vegetables you see in the store. Sure. Which are, you, you just don't get as much money per acre when you grow carrots or squash or things like that, or lettuces. So those things tend to be grown where the water is less expensive. In San Diego County, we grow a lot of ornament. The main thing we grow here are ornamental crops. So that is plants for the landscape and plants for the home, and then cut flowers. That is two-thirds of the agriculture in San Diego County now. So we're the number one horticultural or nursery county in the U.S. by far. Number, number two is far below San Diego County. So if you go into a Lowe's or a Home Depot pretty much anywhere in the West, or you go to a nursery in, in Michigan or Texas, odds are pretty good plants that were grown in San Diego County and then shipped out. So it's a very, very... It's a large, uh, more than a billion dollar industry in San Diego County supplying nursery plants for both indoor and outdoor of the house. So that's the biggest change that's taken place. The other thing is that um, citrus has kind of hung in there in the places where there's inexpensive groundwater. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And avocados continue to be a big part of what we what we do here, simply because... A very efficient avocado grower can still make a profit here, even with a high price of water, because avocados are extremely popular. I mean, they've, they're just they're in every store all the time. Um, so the challenges for the avocado growers are being very efficient with the high cost of water. So while we've lost a lot of avocado growers because of the high cost of water, we're still growing as many avocados. It's just that growers are becoming more efficient on the farm site. Um, and, in, and in shorthand to tell you, it used to be the standard to grow 100 avocado trees per acre. Now the standard is like 300 trees per acre. Wow. So the growers have gone into what's called dense planting. So you plant more trees. So it's denser and you're going to get more fruit per acre. And, does, and it takes the same amount of water. It doesn't take more water to water the three or 400 trees than it took to grow water the hundred trees because you have to get the soil wet no matter what the situation is there with the trees and so that's that's a really big change that is happening right now so growers are going into this 
dense planting of avocados. Are the crops grown? Is there, as I understand it, I guess a lot more people are getting into grapes. Wine grapes, yes. So not table grapes, because table grapes are a relatively inexpensive product. And wine grapes are a relatively inexpensive product. But if you can grow wine grapes and you can make wine, that can be a winning conversation, uh, combination. So we have a lot of wineries. You know, we're, oh gosh, we've got to be in the 125 to 150 bonded wineries in San Diego County now. And there's still a lot of interest. I mean, even to the point where if you go out on Gird Road in Fallbrook, there's a place that used to be called the Fallbrook Country Club out there, yes. a golf course. It's gone. It's now grapes. The whole golf course, all 18 holes are now wine grapes. The golf cart course is gone. And so we're seeing things like that uh, up in Warner Springs, uh, Julian, um, up in Ramona. We've seen a lot more wine grapes being planted in San Diego County. So climate change, how big a concern is climate change for agriculture yeah it, it's huge it's huge um so what happens is um let's say you're growing a crop like we just talked about wine grapes wine grapes need to go deciduous they need it needs to get cold enough there needs to be a winter they need to drop their leaves mm -hmm. well if it stays warm that deciduous period gets shorter and shorter or let's say you're growing apples in julian and you need a certain number of what we call chill hours. So when you grow certain fruits like apples, peaches, nectarines, you have to have what they call chill hours. That's how many hours during the winter the temperature drops below a certain point. And if you don't get those chill hours, you get a poor fruit set. So um, in a place like Julian, where you grow, we like to grow apples, tourists love it. We could grow more up there. But if we get fewer and fewer chill hours because the climate gets warmer, it's going to be much more difficult to grow that fruit. Let's talk about avocados. Avocados, the situation would be, avocados are not going to be that susceptible to the temperature changing. The trees will still flourish. They'll still grow great. But if the temperature's warmer, they're going to need more water. Mm. Because as the air warms up, plants transpire. Trans transpire just as it's that act of bringing moisture through the roots, through the tree, and out through the leaves. So the more transpiration you have, because it's warm, the more water that plant needs. So that works in conflict with the problem we've talked about in length here, the price of water. So if the water's expensive, but the air's warm, that's a problem for a farmer, and they can't control that. So the cost of food... Yeah, you know, that, you know, that comes up all the time. What's that going to do to the cost of food? In the United States, food's already really food is cheap. We're we're pretty spoiled in the United States. We have you know pretty much a cheap food policy. I'd also said earlier in this conversation that foreign competition is an issue for farmers, not just in San Diego County, but the whole the whole U.S. So we talk about this cheap food policy, driven by cheaper water prices but also driven by lower labor costs and a, a less robust regulatory environment, it's really inexpensive to grow in Chile and Mexico and places like that. So if people go into their produce market right now, go into any store in San Diego County, and if you start paying attention to the labels on the fruits and vegetables, you'll see a, a significant number are coming from offshore. 
So you'll go in and you'll see um, pears from Chile, grapes from Chile. You'll see avocados from Mexico. You'll see limes from Mexico. It's become very standard fare. We've 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 gotten to this point in this country where we just our borders are really open to fruits and vegetables coming from any foreign country. That's a real challenge. So the only advantage the American farmer has is the proximity to the marketplace or convincing customers buy a California avocado. You know, it's going to be better. I personally think it is anyway because it hasn't been transported all that distance. So that that becomes a challenge. So back to you. Back to me. Back to you. I mean, this is fascinating to me, all that you know. And, and it, it, I kind of look at it, you know, when I hear about how a challenge from Lou Chase got you going into mm -hmm. uh, the civic side of things. Looking at your career, how would you, how would you say what, what drove it? What, what, were the, what were the turning points? Well, you know, the number one was just moving into agriculture in the first place and deciding to, um, I was accepted at UC Davis, the ag school, and also Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. So I chose to go to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Um, my wife, Jennifer, was my girlfriend. She lived in Carlsbad. San Luis Obispo was a lot closer to Carlsbad than was uh, Davis up in, <laughs> in Davis, up north of Sacramento. So that kind of had part to do with it as well. So, uh, yeah, decided to be in agriculture and doing that. Um, and being in production agriculture, I enjoyed that. But the move into nonprofit work, going to work for the San Diego County Farm Bureau, I, I think is kind of um, the crowning thing of my ag career because I got to spend 23 years solving problems for farmers, being their spokesperson in Sacramento, occasionally in Washington, D.C., regularly at the County Board of Supervisors. So when issues came up like farm worker housing, um, or the price of water, or access to water, or new regulations that were going to be damaging to farmers, um, or farmers just getting them through a permit process, I got to spend the bulk of my career helping farmers in San Diego County solve those problems. Sometimes one-on-one -on -one with a farmer, if they, they ran up against something that was just really, really challenging for their farm, but more than not, dealing with policy issues that help farmers across the region and I took great satisfaction from that and hopefully made a little bit of a difference in, in helping farming you know survive here in San Diego County. Sounds like you were probably on the road a lot. I was on the road a lot um, mostly on the road in San Diego County right because we're a big county if you start thinking about we have farms out in Hamul and areas like that and clear up into Fallbrook and Oceanside it it's it's a lot of it's a lot of territory but yeah in sacramento quite a bit actually um dealing with things up there um farming in san Diego county is a little bit different than the rest of the state because we're a, we're a large number of small farms here very large number of small farms in san Diego county a lot of part-time farmers people who farm but do something else and a lot of times the regulations they would write in sacramento really didn't quite fit for san diego county so we'd have to go up and fight for that and say wait a minute you're going to pass this new law that has an impact on every farmer in San Diego, in, in the California, but it's really the wrong law for, for San Diego County. So if they wrote a law that would affect all the, the, the gallows of the world, the giant winemakers, right. wait a minute, what's that going to do to the one acre wine grape grower in Ramona? And so that was the fight that we were constantly fighting all the time. 
So your role in that, I mean, it sounds like you had to be really hands-on. Yeah, so the, the Farm Bureau is a national organization. There's one in every state of, of, of the union. And then in California structure, there's a Farm Bureau office in every county. Mm. And so I ran the San Diego County office. We had a staff of, you know, depend five, six people, a nonprofit organization run by a board of directors. Uh, I got a new boss every two years when they elected a new president of the Farm Bureau. So that in itself, well, it was a challenge, but you, you had to kind of like uh, reorganize yourself and see what are the priorities going to be now. But it's a great organization. And the majority of farmers belong to it because they've all figured out a single farmer sitting on that one acre wine grape farm in Ramona doesn't have much of a voice. Yeah, yeah. But if we get several thousand farmers together through an organization, in the case of San Diego County Farm Bureau or throughout California, now you have a voice. And all of a sudden, people will listen. Yeah. Well, I, I, uh, I would imagine then you had mentioned learning Spanish and having to, uh, to kind of develop a skill set for interacting with farm workers. You also actually served on Carlsbad's Farm Worker Housing Committee. Was that committee as politically fraught as the name would suggest? You know what? It, it was until we found a location where to build the housing. Um, so it's, it's up off Palmer Airport Road. And an interesting thing, and I, again, I'll, I'll digress a little bit. As Carlsbad was developing, the Coastal Act got passed at the same time. A lot of people are familiar with the Coastal Commission and the Coastal Act that you can build. And two laws were passed, Mellow 1 and Mellow 2, gosh, 1970s. I'm so, and every time you took farmland out of production in San Diego, in, in Carlsbad, and converted it to housing, the developer had to pay between five and 10000 per acre into a fund. And that fund was intended to help maintain the remaining farms in 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 Carlsbad and a lot of that money went to the farm worker housing program so and it also helped fund a homeless shelter in Carlsbad as well and so uh, La Posada and so that was a good thing and I've, I've served as the chairman of that committee for a long time in Carlsbad deciding where those funds um should be spent. And I don't know, we've probably given out um, several million dollars over the year on those projects. It's kind of coming to an end because really when you look at Carlsbad, Carlsbad's getting close to being fully developed. So those farmlands that went out of production and went into housing tracks, that's pretty much done. So there's really nobody paying money into those funds anymore. So uh, eventually all that money will have been spent. That really makes Bud Lewis sound prescient, you know? I mean, the idea of cutting back the plan and, and because, I mean, I stopped to think about this idea of water and you think of every home that's built, you know, when they put a lawn in, when they, you know, another family, all of them taking showers and doing whatever they do to use water. If the population doesn't get some sort of stopgap on it, it's... Yeah, there's a sustainability issue for communities, absolutely. Not to complicate the conversation, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens in Carlsbad next. So Carlsbad has a general plan, and it says how many houses you can build where and how many can be multifamily and how many are single family and all that. Completely, the city's completely mapped out. Nothing should come as a surprise to anybody when someone comes along and says, hey, we're going to build this here. 
it's 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 all planned out if you want to sit and look at the plan that said and it's always been a very clear line sacramento has their work but cities make their own land use decisions that's been up to the cities sacramento is now sticking their nose into that more mm. and more and more and even though we have this growth management plan in Carlsbad, we have a general plan that kind of says this is basically what's going to happen in Carlsbad. Uh, the, the state recognizes there needs to be more housing in California. And places like Carlsbad could, could have their hand forced to maybe create some more dense housing around transportation corridors, let's say, where it would be what they say, quote unquote, smart growth, to put more people along the rail line or more people along, along the freeway. That remains to be seen. Uh, Carlsbad's talking about that now. And are probably going to be taking a look at that in the very in the very near future. Yeah, just as a neophyte, I I kind of I hear that and I go, well, wait a minute, we're not exactly you know for for all that has been done to provide us all these multiple sources of water. I don't know how much water the desal plant does, but it seems just kind of crazy to keep building this county up. Yeah, the desal plant. I don't know if it fifty thousand acre feet of water here sounds like a lot of water, but um, probably, what is that? Not even 20% of our water usage in San Diego County. So it's, it's, not, it's not the panacea. And we're not going to build any more desal plants. That, that one got built and it kind of got, got in, got done. And they'll probably build one more in Huntington Beach in California. And that'll, that'll be the end of desal, I think. That's, that's just me talking. Because there just doesn't seem to be an appetite for building desal plants in, in California. But you're right. I, I think the I think people need to really focus in on the sustainability of our communities. But at the same time, people keep coming here. So, um, what's the reality of it? Are we going to continue to have two or three families living in houses, which we have in a lot of cases now? Our homes going to become multi generational. It's a challenge. Housing is it's it's a huge huge challenge in Southern California. Over the course of your career, it sounds like it was not uncommon at any point in time for you to hold three titles or, you know, being doing multiple jobs. And that's even before we start getting into civic stuff like Friends of the Library or, or mm. local athletics, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I, I always enjoy doing a lot of things. I enjoyed being involved. I, I will have to admit, uh, when I got involved with the Farm Bureau, I kind of had to dial some other things back because... That job working for the farmers was pretty all-consuming and it didn't leave a lot of room for doing other things, to be perfectly uh, frank with you, because I, I just loved it so much. And to me, at 50 or 60 hours a week helping the farmers just didn't seem like work. It just was something I just enjoyed, enjoyed doing. So, but, but you're right. I, I always enjoyed doing multiple things. I just like to be engaged. I kind of like to know what's going on. And <laughs> maybe that's it. Maybe that maybe that's the bottom line. Well, actually, no to me, it sounds like that's the ideal definition of a calling. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're doing something that has has that much passion in it, that it that it doesn't even seem like work, that it just keeps you energized. It's yeah, I feel really lucky in that, and that's why I, I worked till I was age seventy. I just saw no reason to stop because uh, I was enjoying what I did. And um, I know plenty of people that had the capacity. My dad retired, my dad, my brother, my sister all retired at age 55. People retired at 60, 62, all along. Went to my 50th high school reunion and looked around. Everybody's, 
Eric, I think you're the only person here that's still working. <laughs> I go, well, I, I get up and I enjoy it. And I really like going to work each day. So I, I guess I'll, I'll, on the ledger, I'll, I'll put that under the lucky side that I fell into a profession that I enjoyed so much. I just wanted to keep doing it. Well, that's, that's interesting because a lot of times, you know, my, my background is in organizational behavior. And one of the things that that uh, is addressed a lot in, when they look at that subject is the idea of work-life balance. Mm -hmm. How would you describe yours? Well, you know, um, I was always very comfortable with it. Raised two boys here in Carlsbad. I don't feel like, I mean, I went, uh, one was involved in athletics, never missed a game. One was involved in uh, theater, never missed a performance. Uh, even when they're in college, we still went to their schools and, and, and followed those things. And even in their professional careers did that as well. And so I, I, I feel like I was, I was lucky enough because this is something about farmers. Farmers work hard. There's no getting around that. These, these folks are the salt of the earth, but they have a really strong belief in that work-life balance. So no one ever called me on it. There was never a question if I said, gee, you know that meeting we were scheduled to have at four o'clock on Thursday? My son's got a ball game. And everybody go, oh, Eric's son's got a ball game. We got to change that meeting. And so I was really lucky that way as well. So it helped me maintain that work-life balance yeah, yeah. Be, be, because of that. Were your kids drawn to your life? My kids were not drawn to my life at all. So um, not interested in agriculture said uh one son was drawn to the performing arts and grateful for that he's very good at it so that's what he's done another son drawn to athletics he's continued to do that as well so those were things uh, just as i was inspired in high school to follow the path of agriculture they were inspired at carlsbad high school to follow those two paths which they did as well so yeah they followed in my footsteps in that way they found something early that they really like to do, and they pursued it. And so, uh, yeah, the kind of work that I did. But they weren't raised in an agricultural environment. They were raised in Carlsbad. My agricultural connection went from Encinitas, where there was still a lot of agriculture at the time. I got drawn into it, lived in Carlsbad, but they weren't raised in that agricultural environment at all. So there really would have been no reason for them to be pulled in that direction. Yes. Matter of fact, I noticed I, I look at your civic and your community involvement and just it amazes me. Uh, and I, I wonder, did that rub off on, on your sons at all? Uh, <laughs> no, it just wasn't. It just, you know, maybe they saw me doing that. And there was some anxiety in that. And there was some pressure in doing that. And wasn't always easy. Yes. Um. People, when I did that kind of work, people weren't as tribal as they are now. So I would say it was easier then than it would be now. Um, but they may have saw on that and go, oh, you know what? I, I don't think that's for me. And now they've both got very young kids. They've each got a two-year-old and a four-year-old. So that's the last thing they need to do. Uh, that's not to say they won't get involved in something as time goes on. So if you were asked to offer one piece of advice to a young person looking for their life's purpose or their career choice, what would you say? Well, you know, um, don't settle. Figure out, figure out what you have a passion for and, and pursue that. Because you mentioned a little bit ago, people will say, 
you don't want to go to work and make it feel like work. You, you want to be excited about what you want to do. And you want to be in, I, for me, I want to be in a kind, do the kind of work where I could set goals and meet those goals and feel like, okay, I want to accomplish this. I want to accomplish that. And, and work for people that you like, for people that you enjoy being around. So that'd be my advice. I mean, you work a long time. You don't want it to be drudgery. You, you want it to be something that you enjoy. And I think in any line of work, you can, you can find the enjoyment in it. You can find the passion in it. Yeah. Well, Eric, this has actually been a, just a complete privilege and a, and a real joy having this conversation with you today. So thank you so much for your time. Well, Dan, I really appreciate it. It was, really, it was fun for me. I enjoyed it. I, <laughs> as you realize here, once you ask me a question, I just might roll on and on and on because I really enjoy having these kind of conversations. It was fun for me. That's an interviewer's dream. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thanks. There's a theme that runs through the lives of people I've been fortunate to interview for Unspoken Unsung. A theme that Eric Larson spoke about directly. That theme is passion. Some of our guests heroically overcame major struggles in their lives. Others discovered their life's path early on, but all ultimately fueled their life's triumphs with passion and its natural companion, purpose. Eric's path seemed clear from his teens on, but it took a whole new level and course when Lewis Chase challenged him to take on the role of City Parks and Recreation Commissioner, though he had no prior experience whatsoever. Unquestionably, his life trajectory altered when he agreed to take that responsibility on. Eric Larson's story, along with all the other unspoken unsung guests, brings to mind a famous quote by William H. Murray from his account of the fraught but ultimately successful Scottish Himalayan expedition in 1951. Murray wrote, Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never have otherwise occurred. The whole stream of events issues from the decision raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings, and material assistance which no man could have dreamt would have come his way. I have learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Unspoken Unsung was recorded in the Conversair Studio, Carlsbad, California. Additional recording and mixing was done at Brother Rock Projects, also in Carlsbad. Martin Danner and Ken Langen engineered the recording. Post-production engineer was Ken Langen. The 
show's host and producer is Dan Danner. Music was provided by Zapsplat. Listen and subscribe to Unspoken Unsung wherever you find your podcasts. And if you like it, please rate and review us. Join us again next month for the next episode of Unspoken Unsung.